The following recording is part of a six-week series entitled Rooted, a study through the Book of Colossians at Holy Cross Church. All right. Well, we're going to continue tonight in our Rooted series. And last week we talked about being rooted in the power of God. Uh, talked about that it's God who qualifies and empowers us to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And without God's power, we're incapable of doing that. Um, Tonight, we're going to look at being rooted in the center of the gospel. And we're going to look at the question, what is the center? Um, can I get the lights on? Sorry. I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> is that okay? Awesome. Tonight, we're going to look at rooted in the center. Some, throughout the sermon, I might just blurt out things that are unnecessary. <laughs> so I apologize already. Look at our passage for tonight that we read in verse 15. The very first word. What is that very first word in that passage? He. He. Now this word in this short passage that we read is used 17 times. And there's something something significant about that. There's a point that Paul, the writer of of the book of Colossians, is trying to make in this. And this passage is all about... I'm going to give the cookies all away right now. uh, What it's talking about. Who the he is. It's Christ. Uh, There, I just ruined it. It's... You can all leave now. There's nothing else to learn. It's all about Christ. Tonight, all that we're going to learn about is about Christ. It is about He. It's about Him. It's about His. Throughout this entire passage, it's talking about He is the center. Everything finds its worth in Him. Everything He, Him, His. It just goes on like that 17 times in this short, short passage. It's all about Jesus. And in fact, we're going to make that about Jesus tonight. We're going to make our time together learning about Jesus. And in fact, every week should be talking about Jesus, and I invite you to hold me accountable to that. If there's ever a time when we come and we go through the scripture, we, we look at it, and we leave, you can come up to me and say, Pete, you didn't talk about Jesus tonight, because every week is about Jesus. But this passage hits it hard, 17 times. The first eight words of this passage are going to get our wheels kind of turning as we get into this. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Some might say, we, don't, we can't know what God is like. We don't know what God is like. We can know things about, but we really can't grasp our, around what is God like. Who, can, you know, who could even know? But we can know what God is like. Paul is saying, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? We look at Christ. We observe how he acted. We can know what God is like. We can know so much just from looking at his life. Think of a few things as, I, as we search through the scriptures. There's things that maybe pop up in your head right now that you can just go off and say, this is what God is like because I've seen this is what Christ is like. He is merciful. If you're familiar with that passage in John 8 where that, that woman who is caught in adultery is brought into the town square with all these accusers around her have stones in their hand ready to kill her. And Jesus said, he who is out sin, throw the first stone. And it says from the oldest first to the youngest, they started to leave. And this woman, just in her grief, in her tear, in her shame, in her guilt, she looks up and Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she says, they have all left. And Jesus says, I don't accuse you either. We see that people who are guilty of punishment and deserve punishment, we see that Christ shows mercy. And so we can say then that God is a merciful God. 
We see that Christ is gracious, that he shows favor to people who are undeserving of favor. I mean, look at the people that he surrounded his whole life with. His closest friends were just misfits. They were fishermen. They were nobodies. They were has-beens. They were people that were of no notoriety at all. And Jesus went to them and said, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you an unmerited favor of friendship that you don't deserve with me. We see, so we see that God is like that. God is gracious. He gives gifts to people that don't deserve it. We see that God is zealous. He's passionate about holiness. Jesus, if you remember that story in John 2 where he goes into the temple and he throws the tables over. He makes a whip and he goes around whipping people, throwing tables. And some might say, see, God is just irrational and gets in moods. But we see from that passage that God is actually passionate about our holiness because Jesus was like that. And everything that we see in Jesus teaches us about what God is like. He is zealous for us. This is what God is like. And Jesus is the key to knowing the character and person of God. And so I I encourage you to search the scriptures in a very intentional way. As you read the scriptures and you see something that Christ is saying or doing, or somebody is talking about what Christ has done or said, pay very close attention to those things. Feel free to read the red letters in the Bible a little bit more intently. These words of Christ, because you can know what God is like by looking at the character and nature and person of Jesus. What else does it say about Jesus in our passage? It says that he is the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean that Jesus was created first by God. There are some who claim to be Christians that say, that say this, that they believe this, that God created Jesus and Jesus was made by God. And this is a great, profound error. A spiritual father and a spiritual mother did not get together and have a spiritual baby in the name of Jesus. The Bible teaches that Christ was preexistent, preeminent, eternal, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in honor to God the Father. First doesn't always mean numerical order of events, but rather an order of supremacy over creation. You've been to a football game, I imagine, once, twice, seen it, heard about it, know somebody who went, right? You ever see those number one fingers, you know, the foam fingers that everybody... And, and both teams have them, which is kind of confusing. And both are claiming something. Um, they're not claiming, we were the first school ever, you know, you can Google it. I mean, it's like, hey, guys, we can, let's settle this fair and square. You know, I'm going to Google which is the first, who, was, who came first, you know? Annapolis, you know, St. John's in Maryland. I don't know, third. I found out it was the third school tonight, but. Okay, let's settle this fair and square. Now, they're not talking about we came before you. They're saying we are the best. We are supreme. We are dominant. We are on top. And at this very instant, there is nobody better than us. We are number one. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the one-of-a-kind, eternal Son of God, eternally existing with the same divine nature as God forever. Always has been, always will be. He did not progress to be God. He did not move towards a path of becoming God. He is God and always has been God. He always has been God. The passage goes on to say this about Christ. By being supreme over all creation, says that he was the firstborn of all all creation, supreme over all creation, that all things were created through him and for him. So let's look at that. Through him 
and for him. Think about that, creation. All of creation is created through Christ and for Christ. Everything was created to find its design and meaning and purpose in Christ. Paul says all things that are visible, all things that are invisible, all things that are visible. Everything that you see, everything that you can smell and touch and feel and look at, everything that you can see in the visible world was made through Christ and for Christ. It was meant to find his, its or his or her purpose and meaning in Jesus. What about things that are invisible? What are those things? Angels, demons, spiritual powers. Even those things are very, very real. You can't see them, but they do exist. The Bible teaches about them. Angels and demons are real. It's not just a movie. Thanks, Tom Hanks. It's, it, they are real things. And it even says those things were created through Christ and for Christ. And what happened was when sin came into the world, all of creation that was created to find its meaning and purpose and pleasure in Christ... Sin disrupted it, perverted it, alienated it from finding its purpose, meaning, and joy in Christ. All things we see and don't see were created by Christ and owe their design to Him. He designed all things to work in a certain way. You know, think about this. A few years ago, I got the gift set of Planet Earth. Have you seen those DVDs? Where it just goes through each different... uh, you know, zone in the world, you know, deserts and highlands and North Pole and deep sea and salt water and all, the, all these different areas. And it just goes through the whole entire earth and examines it in, in a beautiful way. And, and I love this series. And I'm watching and I'm listening to Sigourney Weaver, you know, just like talk about all these animals and like, wow, this is Sigourney Weaver. This, there's nobody who can better narrate this movie. This is just really great. Um, and and, and it, all these things, all these animals and all the things, that, the way that the world works, that design... Jesus designed that. Jesus purposed that it would act this way. All things were created through him and for him to find their meaning and pleasure in him. There's these sea creatures that live thousands of feet below the surface of the water in in, in absolute complete darkness. It is so deep down that there's absolutely zero light. None. (laughs) And this, animal, this fish has this, this tentacle that kind of floats in front of its face, and it glows like a light bulb. And all these little sea creatures and fish around it are attracted to this light, and they come close, and as soon as they get close, this fish just, like, eats it. <laughs> Jesus designed that. <laughs> that that would happen that way. Did you know that seahorses are the only creature ever that, get, that the men get pregnant? I'm glad for that. (laughs) Seahorses, the males, get pregnant. That was Jesus' idea. All that we see, all that we don't see, everything, find their design in Christ. That's what Jesus is like. This passage is about him. And we need to see everything around us in finding its absolute design and purpose in Jesus. Now, we took, looked at one word, he, his, his, him. We looked at that one form of that word 17 times, and there's, there's another word in this passage that I want to focus on. There's another word. It's used in the first five verses. It's used eight times. What is it? 
If the 25-minute sermon turns into a 40, it's your fault. What's that word? No? That may be. Very good guess. What is it? All? That's it. Oh, in some form of that word. All, every, everything, all. What, it, what was the sermon about tonight? Uh, two words. His and all. That's really weird. Look at this. There's, there's an intention here that Paul's trying to make with these two words, these two realities. Christ and all. Everything is about Jesus. All rulers, all authorities, all reason, all emotion, all passion, all ambition, everything that is, ever was, or ever will be is designed to find its meaning and pleasure in Jesus. All are made for him and through him. If that's true, so we just kind of looked at this Jesus, it's about Jesus, this passage is about Jesus, what is he like? If those things are true, then these have incredible implications for your life and for my life. If everything is about Jesus, then we must look at our life in a very different way. Is that fair? (laughs) If everything is about him, all, everything, every, those are the words that Paul uses, are his, him, and he. It's all about Jesus. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at what does that look like? What are the implications for our life? If all is about Jesus, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? What is the effect? We we need to think about the effect of the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ in all of creation, including our lives. We're going to look at home and family life. These are the things we want to look at. Think about as we're walking through this. How does it apply to your home and family life? How does it apply to your work, play, and social life, your friendships, your roommates, your date life? your married life. Think about your dreams, your goals, your ambitions, your desires, your passions, the things that you're moving forward to and, and for. Because that is included in all, every, and everything, right? Visible and invisible. Three implications of the centrality and supremacy of Christ. The first one is this. Here's an implication. If Christ is supreme in all, every, and everything, the commands of God should be celebrated. You can follow along in your bulletin as well because we have nice little blanks for you. I know you're already trying to guess what the next two are. The commands of God should be celebrated. Often the commands of God are not celebrated, are they? The commands of God are restrictions. They're, they're restrictions. They're um, inhibitions. They're things that, in it, that keep us from doing what we want, what we like, what we desire. They're hindrances to pursuing a life that we believe is, is good, is better, is best, is all, every, everything. And so, a lot of times when we look at the scriptures and the commands of, of God to his people, we see them as downers, as, as um, unfavorable things. Uh, we see them as things that are keeping us back, and things that are not enjoyable. But God's commands, if this is true about Jesus, then the commands of Christ are not intended to rob us of our joy, but they are intended to give us complete joy and pleasure in our design, in how we are created to be. If God is, if everything finds its, its joy and pleasure and meaning in Christ, then whatever Christ says to us is designed to keep us on that path. 
Everything. All, every, everything. Everything that Christ says. If he's supreme, then this way of pointing us to enjoying himself through his commands is also supreme. It's also best. It's also good. His intention through his commands are not to punish us, not to keep us from enjoying life, but to give us life, to help us to keep life, to lead us into life. Where else in the Bible can you think of the, the, just the most strictest or systematic form of rules that are given to God's people, and that's the Ten Commandments, right? Right, right there in one place we have a, actually a list, a list of things that God desires. And right before God, through, through Moses, gives these Ten Commandments to God's people, there's a small little sentence right before this in Exodus that Jesus says, I'm sorry, well, God says, through Moses, before I give you these things to do, I want you to know one thing. Remember something about me, that I took you out of slavery, and I gave you new life. So we see even the, the purpose of the Ten Commandments, our, the purpose of them, the design of them, is to help God's people Maintain a life of joy and pleasure in God. And saying, remember when you used to be like this, when you used to be in slavery, when you you weren't allowed to do what you wanted to do, you weren't allowed to worship me? I've taken you out of that, and now I've given you commands, and therefore you're good. But if you know the story, they still wanted to go back. They were in the desert, and they were wandering, and they said, you know, there were people that kind of got together and grumbled and said, I want to go back. You know, they had stake there. Let's go back to Egypt where it was better. Maybe things weren't really bad. And don't we do that at times? I mean, don't we do that for for those of us who who say we love Jesus, we want to obey his commands, we find ourselves living our life pleasing to him? Aren't there times where we say, man, this is really exhausting. I remember when things weren't so, so hard to do, so hard to focus on things. But when we search the scriptures and encounter God's commands of all kinds of things, how we should spend our money, how we should treat our marriage, how to live in a single life, how to raise our children, how to live socially, what to participate in, what to not participate in, what to stand against, what to be in favor of, all these commands of God, when we encounter these in the scriptures, it's designed to have us find our joy in Christ. It's training our hearts and minds to love the commands of God. What did he say? I said to love the commands of God. To love God's commands? To love God's commands. The Psalms are like this. David, the psalm writer, many of his psalms were just that. I love your commands. I love when you tell me how to live. I love when you tell me what to do. Why did David love that so much? Because David was, his heart was for God. And so his heart was saying, God, let me know if there is a way to find joy and pleasure in you. I want to know. And so when God responded in command, in law, David said, I love these. These are like morsels, sweet fruit that are going to satisfy my heart. But how often do we live like that? When we encounter something in scripture and it's a command, how often do we say, I love that. I'm so glad I can't do that anymore. Because we don't understand that it's designed for us to find our complete pleasure and joy in God. But it is. The truth about Christ implies that we would love what the Bible says about sex life, 
about money, about ethics, about parenting, about social behavior, about any issue. All, every, and any, everything. Any issue that we can encounter, God has something to say about it, either explicitly or implicitly in his word. All these things are true about Christ. If they are true, then the desires of Christ are most beautiful things, and we should want to walk in them. If we love God, we should want to walk in his way. We should love it. We should enjoy it. Any act, thought, behavior, desire that is the slightest way compromising of God's commands are designed to pry us from his joy, to rob us of life. There is no exception. Here's the second thing. If all these things are true about Christ, not only should we find that his commands are beautiful, but the second is that we should think about your spiritual life seriously. We should think about our spiritual life seriously. If we're to grow as Christians, we need to know about the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ. It is true. It's all about him. Have you ever admired your own work? I'm sure we all have. We're all vain to some extent. Have you ever done anything and took a step back and said, now I wish someone was here because that's just beautiful. (laughs) I want someone to see whether it's yard work, right? Uh, Whether it's tending the yard or a garden, it's beautiful. Whether it's, it's painting something, whether it's sculpting something whether it's cleaning the kitchen, and it's just, and you're like, I tackled that in an hour. It's like an all-time record. Whatever it is, you step back and you admire it. Okay? Our passage that we read tonight says that Jesus will do that with us. He will stand back from his work, and it will be beautiful. Have you ever had to be a judge of your own work? Have you ever had to do something and then judge it without bias or without, you know, while not being impartial to your own desires? That's really hard. I don't, I don't know if I've ever done that. Done something and had to be my own judge of it. But look at what's going on in our passage. And look at verse 21 again. you got it in your bulletin. It says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And now look at this. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before before who? Before him. So here's what's going on. We were made to find our, our, our complete joy and satisfaction in God. Sin entered into our life, and we we were alienated from God. So sin has alienated us from Christ, from joy, from our meaning, from our purpose in life. Christ takes us. So he takes us out of that. He makes peace with us. The Bible uses the word reconciled. He makes peace with us through his death on the cross. And he presents himself to, he presents us, who he took out of that life, to be judged. But who's doing the judging? He is. So do you see what's going on here? I mean, just picture this in your mind. He takes you out of the pit. He dusts you off and says, let me look at you. Let me look at what I've done. Let me look at you. And now I'm going to judge you based on the work that I've done in your life. That's what the Bible is saying is going on here. Judges don't usually judge their own work because there's danger and bias. But Christ is impartial. The Bible says that God does not show favoritism. He doesn't pick favorites. He's not impartial. I mean, he's not partial. He's not biased. He doesn't have favorites. And so when we know that Christ is going to judge us, 
it's going to be based on a perfect standard of his holiness. We are his canvas. Sin has done something to us. It's kind of rotted our frame. It's kind of eaten away at the edges of it and all the way through. And he creates us into something new. And the Bible says that we will be his masterpiece. Here are the three words that the Bible uses to describe the outcome of his work in that verse. It says, holy, blameless, above reproach. Holy, blameless, above reproach. I don't really like the English translation of this above reproach. And I, and I looked into this, and, and it's... Because when I think of above reproach, what I think that means is um, just better than some or better than most. Like, just be better than some people. But the word is actually different. It's actually pure. It's actually without any cause to bring any offense towards you. So really what the words are, it's, it's holy, blameless, and something like pure or without blemish or without any accusation. No one can find a single thing wrong with you. Okay? When we're presented to Christ, he will make sure that there's no accusation that is able to be brought against you. What, how are you doing today? <laughs> um, is there any accusation that Christ could bring against you? And what Jesus is saying is, my desire for you, I desire to do a work in you, that when you stand face to face with me, no one will be able to bring any accusation against you. You will be holy, blameless, above reproach, pure, without blemish. Christ desires to have all things returned to their created Perfect, glorious, lovely, beautiful order, including you. You were created through and for Jesus. If you are included in all, every, everything, then that means that you were created through and for Jesus. And he intends to bring things to the created order, back to the way that they were. And Paul wants you and I to think about our spiritual life in a serious way. Thinking about Christ and who He is, applying His centrality and supremacy to everything in our life. Christianity is not about a particular set of beliefs. It's not about a pattern of lifestyle in which to live. It is about one thing, and it's that first word in our sentence. It's about He, Him, and His. It is about Jesus. What's Christianity about? It's about a person. It's about Jesus. It is about him and what he's done, about his character, his nature, his creation, and what he has done. It's about what he continues to do through us. Christianity is not about being a good person. Those are symptoms of what Christ does in your life. Christianity is about, about Jesus. He is the subject. We are the object of his doing, the recipients of his work. Have you ever thought of yourself in such a light before? Have you ever thought of yourself that that is who you are, that you were created through and for Jesus? It's a big deal. And we should think of ourselves. We should regularly talk about Christ and what he's done for us. We should regularly study and think and meditate, reflect about Christ and his work and what he's done and what that means about our life. If you don't know this work that Christ has done, it's his desire that you would know him and know who he is and his character and nature and trust in that. And we will all stand before Christ to be judged. Now, and I don't want to get like all fire and hellfire and brimstone right now. I'm not going to. But it seems like when I say, we're all going to stand before Jesus and be judged. But that's the reality and the Bible talks about that in a big way. And my question is, do you want him judging you based on your work 
or judging you based on his work. And that's what Christ has done, is he takes us out of this pit, and he works in our life, and he cleans us up, and he says, let me look at you. And he'll say, I've done a good job. Paul goes on to talk about that. A critical third point is this. We should reflect on how we go about meeting our felt needs. This created order is this. We were made through and for Christ. The greatest expression of our created purpose is to be on a head-on collision with Jesus. A head-on course towards Christ, finding our meaning, pleasure, and purpose in Him. Driving towards Him, living for Him, pressing in Him in all things. If Christ is supreme and central and firstborn in all creations, in all creation, then our needs must be met in Him. So what am I talking about? What kind of needs? I'm talking about felt needs. What are some felt needs? I mean, we know what those are, right? Felt needs are like significance. Feeling significant. And that's asking the question, what makes me important? You may have asked that about yourself. What, what makes me important, an important person? Another felt need is belonging. And that's the question, where do I fit in? Where do I fit in? What's, what's, what makes me important? Why am I a good person? Where do I fit in? Another felt need is affection. Do you ever desire affection from others? That's the question, who thinks I'm important? Who thinks I'm special? Another felt need is love. Who loves me? Who loves me? Does anybody love me? Another one is companionship. And that's the question, who's my friend? Right? So these are all just felt needs. There's many more. You may be feeling something right now that I didn't touch on. But we all ask those questions. Not just girls. (laughs) We all ask these questions. Every single person. Who loves me? Who's my friend? Who cares about me? Who thinks I'm important? Who am I important to? Do I, does anybody care? Those are felt needs. If we were created through and for Christ, then the answers to those questions are intended to be met in Jesus. Our felt needs need to be met in Jesus. We are needy people. But no one likes to be called that, do they? Now, we're needy people because we need things from Jesus. But when you say someone's a needy person, what does that really mean? That all those things that they need, it's very evident, there's an an evidence in their life that they have, they're trying to meet those needs in the wrong places. Either through you or somebody else or some pleasure or some, some possession that they have. And you're saying, oh, that person is so needy. You're not saying that person has needs because you have needs as well. But what you're saying is that person is going about finding the answers to their questions in the wrong place. You don't want to be called a needy person. I want you to like me. It's like, I want you to like me. I want you to love me. I want you to think I'm a good person. Be my friend. No pressure, but can you be my friend, please? You know, that's, that's a needy person. I want to find my felt needs in you. Answering these questions in anything other than Christ. We're filling our need with the wrong thing. Because those things will never deliver. Nothing that has been created will ever deliver on meeting those needs that Christ can. Christ is not created. He is pre-existing. We were created to find our needs in him. You know Al Franken, senator from Minnesota? He's going to get all political now. I'm not. He used to be a comedian on Saturday Night Live. Remember? I guess I'm getting a little political. 
You remember his character, Stuart Smalley? What would he do before an interview? He'd sit in front of a mirror and do what? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Al Franken, good guy. Bad senator. No, no. <laughs> I don't really know. Don't know him. Al Franken is this character, Stuart Smalley, is hilarious. The point is, is he's a needy person. He has these felt needs that he is wanting. He's convincing himself, I can find these things in other people. And he has to tell himself that all the time. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. The gospel says something different. The gospel says this. Come when you are weary. Come when you are weak. Come when you're sinning. Come when you are a sinner. When you are a horrible person, come to Christ. Don't fix yourself. Don't wait to fix yourself. Don't try to fix yourself. Don't clean yourself up because you can't do it. Come to Jesus. Jesus says that. He says, all who are weak, come to me. I will give you rest. Are you tired? Are you hurting? Do you have needs? Are you sick? Are you guilty? Are you, do you feel shame in your life? Do you want to live? Come to me. Because all things were created to find their purpose, meaning, and pleasure in me. I know because I was there. That's what he's saying. That's the gospel. And transformation can't happen without Christ. So if you've not found yourself transformed by this head-on collision with Christ, you're probably hanging your hat on something that will never deliver for you. You're probably trusting in something that will never fulfill those needs. Maybe temporarily, maybe for a night or two, but never for the long run. Christianity is not about holiness. And I'm going to even go as far to say this. Christianity is not about getting saved. Christianity, salvation is a symptom of being loved by Jesus and loving him. Salvation is is a byproduct of finding your complete pleasure and joy in Christ. Verse 23, this is a hard passage. Look what it says. It says, all these are going to happen for you. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It says all things are going to happen. All these things are going to happen for you if you continue to do them. And what that means is Christianity is not about salvation. Christianity is about Christ. And if you remain in him, if you continue in him, if you continue in this head-on pursuit of finding your joy and love and purpose and meaning in Christ, then that will build up. And it will build up forever. And the end product is going to be eternal life and salvation and perfection and holiness and blamelessness and above reproachnessness. Sorry. I told you I was going to say things that didn't make sense. <laughs> those things are going to happen. Those are byproducts. That turns up things upside down from how we normally think about it, right? So what we normally think about is become holy, become blameless, become above reproach, and Jesus will love you. The gospel says Jesus loves you so that you can become holy, blameless, and above reproach. He will do those things in your life. If you're to grow as a Christian, increasing in wisdom, power, and patience, and thanksgiving, all these things that Paul talks about, we need to know above all else the supremacy and centrality of Christ in our life. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's what we were made for. Think about your life. In terms of those things, think about your life in relationship to Christ and who he is. First, think about Jesus. 
Did you know those things about Jesus to be true? If not, they're true. You should, you should, you should go and, and, and dig deeper into them. Find out who Jesus is. Keep coming back because we're going to keep talking about Jesus. Think about your life in response to his greatness and supremacy and glory. Do you live as if he's supreme in your life? In the things unseen and the things seen? The best response for us is to turn our hearts, to turn our minds, to turn our lives, to position ourselves to see Christ, his work, his character, his nature, and to trust in that. And that's all. So think about those things. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.